turn to the book of Philippians. There are Bibles in the back if you need one. Um, We are turning our attention once again to the book of Philippians, our sermon series, through this little but uh, very encouraging epistle or book, uh, verse by verse, is gospel joy, as we're calling it. An inner abiding and everlasting joy is not only uh, uh, established but sustained in Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. So we're looking at the different aspects of the gospel and the joy of the gospel through this great book called Philippians. It is great news. It should bring great joy that a holy God will be reconciled to sinful people like you and I through the work, the person, the work of Jesus Christ alone. We'll see that even more evident today as we look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Um, interesting text as we turn to the second portion of this book, and we see, we're actually going to see, uh, we saw last week a little bit more this week and more next week, uh, the actual experience of Paul in his salvation and what he came to learn and realize in and through the gospel. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 7 from God's holy word and we'll jump into the text. Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe or is a safeguard for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We find Paul, the apostle, church planter, pastor planted this church 10 years early as the gospel went into Macedonia, into Europe, into a city of Philippi. And he writes this letter in chapter 1 with great joy how the gospel was advancing, not only through his imprisonment, but also because of the, the work together, the joint participation in the gospel with this beloved church. He hopes to be released from his imprisonment that he may continue his discipleship efforts for the progress and joy of the faith of this wonderful church. But whether or not he gets released or not, he says, live as worthy, live in unity, and live a life worthy of the gospel. He says that in chapter 2, verse 27. And he says, live in the way to do that, even, even while you're being persecuted, there's, there's this under, undergird of persecution that's going on in that church as Paul was persecuted for his faith. And he said, even while you're being persecuted, live worthy, live, live humbly, worthy of the gospel. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the cares and the concerns of others. Just as Jesus, chapter 2, verse um, Verse 6 and following, it says Jesus, who stepped out of glory, took on humanity, take, takes on the flesh and born in the likeness of man, humbled himself, became a slave and died on a Roman cross, was crucified, who, 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 who was not crucified to save himself. He didn't look out for his own interests, but looked out for the interests of others as he died an atoning sacrifice for sinners like you and I. Paul goes on to say, Work that out. See the work of Christ as he humbly gave himself for your salvation. And that should motivate you to work out your salvation with reverence as God is working in you, energizing you to will and to work of his good pleasure. And he closes chapter 2 with a couple of examples of what it means to be a servant of God, a humble, Christ-centered servant of God. And he talks about himself as being poured out as a drink offering upon the faith of the Philippian church. He talks about Timothy and Epaphrodites, all fellow brothers and soldiers together in the gospel, 
humbly serving Christ. And he says in chapter 2, verse 29, almost at the end of chapter 2, the verse before the end, he says, receive him, that is Epaphrodites, and probably a little bit of Timothy, if Timothy comes, in the Lord with all joy, as with, with, with honor such men. It seems that every time Paul turns his attention to something new or changes the subject, he, he interjects his idea of rejoicing, to have joy in the Lord. Rejoice with me, he says. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, or, or, I've got more to say, but let me wrap this up, what I've said so far as I move forward. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to, listen, writing the same thing to you over and over is no trouble to me. It's actually a safeguard for you. And I think Paul in his mind is, is mentioning and remembering uh, the church, remembering Timothy, remembering Epaphrodites as he just finished writing about these faithful men. But he's also looking forward, we mentioned last week, to what he's going to write moving forward. Chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs. Seems like there's a change. Rejoice, just continually rejoice, continually rejoice with me. I'm going to write the same thing. But look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I think he's connecting joy from the past to the future. And he's saying there are those who will come in your midst that will try to rob you of your joy. They're false teachers. We call them the Judaizers. He calls them the Judaizers. Scripture has a lot to say about that. They were teaching that you had to, in order to be a Christian, in order to be a follower of Christ, in order to be saved, to be justified, accepted by God, you had to add to your faith in Jesus obedience to some sort of rules, particularly the law of Moses. Notice I said add to your faith. This was not a works-based only salvation that was being taught. Adding to your faith. In other words, help God in the process to to do your best to achieve right standing with God, acceptance before God, salvation and justification. The reason why I point that out um, is because whether it is adding, which the Judaizers were doing, the law of Moses, or adding sacraments to your faith, anything you're adding to your faith, as Paul would say in Galatians 1, anathema. Whether it's, again, Protestantism, Catholicism, to add anything to the faith, as we shall see, is worthless and will rob you of your joy. Last week, we talked about the contrast of true worship. As Paul characterizes in chapter 2, the Judaizers, these false teachers, who said you can have faith in Jesus, but you've got to add to the works of Moses, to the works of the law, the law of Moses. And he contrasts these two between those who are worshiping God are trying to, at least to think they're worshiping, by adding to the faith, and those who are true worshipers who worship by faith alone. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilate the flesh. Those who mutilate the flesh, those are the Judaizers. It's interesting he used the term dogs because dogs was, you know, not, as I mentioned last week, not the furry little animal you have at home, but they were, they were dirty and diseased scavengers that roamed the countryside and they were used, the term dogs were used by the Jews and the Judaizers as derogatory towards Gentiles. And Paul turns it around and says, no, no, you who are adding to faith for your justification, for your salvation, are the true dogs, the evildoers. Not the workers of the law, but the evildoers. And then he goes on to say, if you, if you, if you insist on adding law-keeping to your salvation, your moral rightness to your faith, particularly with the, with, the, with the rite of circumcision, which we got into last week. We'll, we'll look at it again in a minute. But um, then, then you just go ahead and mutilate yourself. That's what he says. The mutilation of the flesh. He said the same thing. I mentioned last week he said the same thing in Galatians. But let me read the verse to you this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul's preaching a gospel of faith alone in Christ alone, adding nothing to your faith. That's what Galatians is all about. He says, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, in other words, you have to be, come through the Jewish tradition, the Jewish ritual in order to be saved. If I'm still preaching that, why am I still being persecuted? Paul says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I'm preaching the cross alone, faith in the work of Jesus alone. He says, I wish those who unsettle you, those who teach adding to your faith the law of Moses, including circumcision, would go ahead and emasculate themselves. 
Different word, same idea. If that's what you think, just do away with it, all of it. But, he says, in contrast, we're the true circumcision. We're the ones who worship by the Spirit. Look at verse 3. We, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We're the ones that don't worship through an outward mark of circumcision, but in the inner reality, a circumcision of the heart who worship by and through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And we boast, look what he says, in Christ. We glory, that word boast, in Christ. He loves us. He saved us. He seized us from that road of destruction and delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And therefore, look what Paul says, put no confidence in the flesh. Don't put your confidence in your action, that's what it means, or your deeds or your human achievements. Put no confidence in the flesh. Faith alone in Christ alone. We, we approach God, we come to God through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for He alone redeems, he alone rescues us, he alone delivers us from the just wrath of God for our sins. We don't glory in anything else. Whether it's earthly possessions, achievements, giftedness, we boast in Christ. That's why we put no confidence in our human achievement. Nothing we can do. And what Paul is going to do as he he leaves verse 3 and starts penning verse 4 He's going to tell us why he personally, the Apostle Paul, why he puts no confidence in the flesh. He's telling us all not to do it, but in chapter uh, 3, verses um, uh, in our text 4 and following, he's given us a personal testimony of why he puts no confidence in the flesh. First is confidence in his religion. So Paul's going to uh, point out that putting confidence in the flesh is never going to, to, to works-based salvation will come to nothing. Now, I want everyone to understand that when I use the word religion, the confidence of religion, you say, well, Christianity is a religion. I, I know. But when I talk about religion in this context, I, I'm, looking, I'm talking about a, a, a set of beliefs, a set of understanding, a philosophy of life where one gains acceptance to God, has a relationship with God through what you do. Human achievement. That's when I talk about religion, I'm talking about human achievement of being right with God. If you've got a Bible, look down at verse 6. We'll get there in a, in a little while, but look, I just want to point that out to you. The second part of verse 6 says this, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Well, Paul is saying there was a time that I was trusting in my human achievement and things that I have done. I put confidence in the flesh to be accepted by God. And somehow through my works, I've been made right with God, righteous before God, which means I've been made right with God. I have access before God because all that I've done. That's what I mean when I talk about religion in this context. And what Paul is doing, I think, in verse 4, is he is letting the church know that there's going to be Judaizers that's going to push against my teaching. There's going to be some that I'm not there, that when I teach you that Christ is sufficient, that the cross is all you need in faith in Jesus, that he is sufficient for our salvation, there's going to be some who's going to come and push against that that's going to continue to say you must keep the law. Paul says, let me give you my personal experience, the truth of how one can be accepted by God in order for you to be armed against this damnable and false teaching. So Paul goes into a personal testimony, somehow going against those who think you can gain salvation by human effort. In other words, if anyone comes to you, church, Philippi, King's Chapel, if anyone comes to you and begins to teach that you can achieve somehow access to God through some sort of ritual or some sort of human effort, he says, just look at me. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. I'm telling you not to put confidence in the flesh, but if anybody in the universe who could put confidence in the flesh for their acceptance before God, it would be me. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in the flesh, I have more. Just look at me. 
And now what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, look, I, I, I got all the right stuff. If anyone could boast in what he's done and who he is, it's me. And now we're going to see a list of seven things. Four things from his ancestry, his heritage, his birth, his birth privileges as a Jew. Things in which he said, this is the right way to go. This is what you need to do in order to be accepted by God. And the last three will have to do with his human achievements. So four things of his ancestry first. And these, <laughs> these qualities that Paul is going, they mean nothing to you. They may mean nothing to you. But in that day, and according to Jewish Custom and the Judaizers were teaching this false doctrine. This was huge. Okay? I won't say huge. This is huge. Yeah. All right? These are very impressive. Very impressive. First, his impressive confidence in his flesh that he would hold on to before he came to Christ. Number one, his right ritual. Look at what it says. His right ritual. Circumcised, but me, I have every right. I, I got all the more. I've been circumcised on the eighth day. Now, we talked about circumcision. not going to get into it. We know that Abraham was given a sign of circumcision, a sign of, of faith in the covenant that was given to him. Uh, he was 99 years old when God made that covenant with him. His son Ishmael was 13, and both him at 99 and his son at 13 were circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And from that point on, every Israelite born to the Jewish people people, the young little boys were circumcised on the eighth day. The apostle Paul, Jesus himself, circumcised in conformity to the law on the eighth day. Even those, if you were converted to Judaism later on in life, you had to be circumcised. I'm not quite sure how they knew who was and who wasn't. That's for another day. Last week, we looked at the reason and the purposes for it. I'm not going to get into it. It's in, it's in last week. Look it up. But just want you to know, it's very important. The sign of the covenant of Abraham that God gave to Abraham came after God declared his faith to make him right. The righteousness that Abraham had, access to God, acceptable to God, was by faith alone. And then he was given the sign of, the circumstance, of circumcision. What Paul is saying is, look... I'm no proselyte coming into the faith later on in life. I'm not, I'm not even an Ishmaelite at 13 years old. I was circumcised according to the custom at eight days old. I am a pure Jew. I entered life not only through my mother's womb, but following the precise Mosaic law and circumcised on the very eighth day according to the law. I went through all the fundamental rites of Judaism, the rites of the ceremony that initiated the covenant people. I'm that guy. And you know, today churches all over the world, I'm sure, put their confidence, as Paul did, in some sort of ritual. Some sort of day when I raise my hand, maybe my baptism, maybe even infant baptism, or attending some sort of meetings, or or. I put my confidence in taking communion or the Eucharist. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. It's not about a right ritual. Because I've been there. I've done that. It's also not about my a right relationship. I'm putting my confidence in the flesh. Look what he says. He was the people of Israel. He was of the people of Israel. Circumcised the people of Israel. What he's saying is, I come from a great spiritual stock. In fact, you could trace my heritage all the way back through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also known as Israel, where the 12 sons were born of Jacob and the 12 tribes come to be through Jacob. And if you know anything about Abraham, we went through Genesis years ago. Um, he had some children and some grandchildren that were outside of the promise. As I mentioned, Ishmael was born uh, from his unfaithful, illegitimate relationship with Hagar, not his wife, Sarai. His, uh, his son Isaac had two sons. Esau, who was the father of the, of the Edomites, was not part of the promise of God. In fact, they're part of the Arabic nation that hates Israel. Paul, unlike many in Palestine, is saying, I'm a pure Jew. I'm, I'm a Jew by heritage. I'm a, I'm a pure descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have direct relationship with the patriarchs of old, through the promise given to Abraham, given to Isaac, given to Jacob. I'm not one of those children that were born outside of the promise. I'm the people of Israel. 
He was born, as they say, right on the right side of the tracks. I think again, as I, as I, as I went through this, this, this week, there are countless numbers of people that believe in that right relationship with someone is going to somehow give them access to God. Whether you grew up in a, in a, in a priest home, or a pastor's home, missionary home, maybe your husband or your wife are followers of Christ, and you're tagging along and think, you know what, I got my ticket in. Paul says, no. It's not about the right relationship. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. Right ritual, right relationship. And then he says, I had the right respectability. Look what he says. The tribe of Benjamin. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the two tribes that you hear most about, I think, Judah and Benjamin. Judah, we know, because Jesus comes from the line and the tribe of Judah. But Benjamin is, a, is an important tribe. Benjamin was the child of Rachel, the one that Jacob loved dearly. In fact, he was the baby. You know how some of you babies around here, you know, you're the youngest in the family. You know what that's like. You're the baby. He's the last born. Benjamin was a tribe that was loyal to the Dynasty of David, when the time of the kingdom under Solomon, if you know anything of the story of Israel, the, the kingdom split. Ten northern kingdoms, two to the south. Benjamin was joined Judah. They were the southern kingdom. They were, they were loyal. The first king of Israel, his name is, first king, Saul, tribe of Benjamin. Some people think that the apostle Paul, whose name was Saul before his conversion, came, you know, they probably named him after the first king. You know who else came from the tribe of Benjamin as he's spouting this pride of, of Benjamin? was a man who God used to spare the entire nation. His name was Mordecai. You know the story of Esther. God used him to preserve the people of Israel. Do you also know that Benjamin, when, when God, when the 12 tribes took the promised land, they were all given a piece of property. Benjamin was given the property where Jerusalem is. The holy city. Now, Benjamin had some issues. His tribe had some issues as well. But Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm from this tribe. I, 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 am, I, am, uh, I, I am the in. I got this, this heritage from this tribe. You know, sometimes, I mean, I could fall into this category too. Sometimes we're maybe a little bit overly proud of our tribe, our denomination, our reformed theology, our certain theological perspectives and orthodoxy. I mean, it's not, I don't think there's anything wrong with fitting in those categories, but what happens is, is when we're trusting and leaning in and relying upon our doctrine rather than on Christ, our denomination rather than on Christ. So Paul says, look, I have the right ritual. I've been circumcised. I've got the right relationship. I'm the people of Israel. I have the right respectability. Man, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm from the right race. Look what he says. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. My mom and my dad are Hebrews. They both are. I'm a child of godly, convinced, jealous, religious parents. And all the benefits that come with those who raised me in the heritage of Judaism. Now, we know that Paul was born in Tarsus. I think every commentator points that out. He wasn't actually born in the promised land. But what Paul is saying, that I grew up, even though outside the land, I practiced all the customs of the Hebrews, my parents were, and they raised me in that. In fact, we learn in Acts chapter 22 at a very early age, Paul left Tarsus and came to Jerusalem to study under a famous man by the name of Gamaliel. He was a chief among all the Jews, and, and, he, and he took Paul in. And Hebrew of Hebrews also means that Paul spoke fluent Hebrew and Aramaic. Shows his devotion to Israel. And what many commentators point out is that the Judaizers who were infiltrating or teaching these false doctrines in Philippi, probably most of them probably were not born in Jerusalem. Many of them were they call what they call a diaspora, meaning they are the Jews that have been scattered and living and growing in other countries and, and raised in. And they probably took on a lot of the culture of, their, of, their, um, of the nation in which they were born and raised, not necessarily in the promised land. And what Paul is pointing out is, although I wasn't raised in the promised land, I learned since I was very young, maybe 12, 13, I learned and grew and uh, uh, in the law while I stayed in Israel, while I, while I lived in Jerusalem. 
But either way, my mom and my dad raised me in all the customs and all the manner of the Jewish people. I'm a true Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I follow the language. I follow the traditions. I never strayed from that. Paul is saying under no uncertain terms, his ancestry, his his heritage, his, his birth privileges were very, very impressive. And how careful, church, do we need to be? I mean, we're only, you know, we, uh, the church got planted and started in 1997, not that long ago. But how careful we need to be that we're not relying upon handed down traditions as a means of acceptability before God. I've heard someone once say, traditionalism is dead faith of the living, but tradition is living faith of the dead. I think, I think we all have to be careful that we're not leaning and relying on something else but on Christ alone. Well, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. Now, if that's not enough, if, 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 his, if his ancestry of all the things he just, all four things he just pointed out, if that wasn't enough, he says, man, listen, let's evaluate the things that I have done. Up to now, all this was given to me because of who I am. I was born into the right family. I was born into the right religion. I was circumcised. He didn't do it. He was eight days old, right? So all these things have been given to me and made available to me. But now, let's turn my attention to the things that I have done. First thing is, he had the right religion. Look what he says. As to the law, I became a Pharisee. Now, over time, read the gospel accounts. Uh, the word Pharisee is synonymous with hypocrite and, and uh, you know, um, legalist. And probably that's true for a lot of them, but not all of them were, right? Um, I don't know if you know anything about the Pharisees, but let me just quickly tell you. The, the word Pharisee means separatist. This group of Pharisees came together when the Old Testament closed and the New Testament opened, there was 400 years of what they called 400 years of silence. A group of Jewish scholars and, and Jewish men got together and saw the, the, the people of God kind of, and I, and I want to be really careful when I say this, but they, they, they were liberal in their theology, okay? And a bunch of men and, and this group called the Pharisees, the separatists, got together and said, you know what, we're not going to lose this thing. We want to we stick to the scripture. We want to stick to orthodoxy. You know, we, we want to, um, you know, we want to uh, uh, apply the scripture uh, accordingly. They were known for their, for their love for the law. They were known for strict interpretation. They were known for their ethical consistency, living moral lives. And Paul excelled in all those things. But as time went on, they came to believe that they were above everyone else. <laughs> um, the way they interpreted the law, the way they lived their life. Not only were they living above everyone else, but somehow they're going to earn their way. The Messiah is going to come back. We're living this perfect life, and, and we have earned salvation. We have gotten into this kingdom of God through our law-keeping. In fact, their laws became so important to them that it became on par with the word of God. And they looked down on others. They began to look down on others who were ed- less educated, less moral, less obedient, and therefore less holy. Instead of being leaders of the people, they became hypocrites, looking down and relying on their moral achievements. They were Pharisees. You know, many people today think salvation, their relationship with God is through moralism. Through somehow doing the right thing, God is somehow going to accept me. And what they're really doing, what people really do when they rely upon their moral standard before God, they have this scale, you know, I do, I do better than I do bad. And what happens is they put God in their debt. God has to forgive me. God has to love me. I'm trying really, really hard. This ain't about following God, obeying God. It's about relying on your obedience as a way to be loved and accepted by God. Rule keepings will not earn our salvation. It's not just for those in the world who call themselves maybe not religious or maybe they follow all kinds of religions for Christians too. I think all of us can fall into this human achievement as a means of salvation and justification. I think it was uh, Luther who said, uh, you know, work salvation is the default mode of the human heart. And pastors, ministry leaders, missionaries who, who serve around the world, Sunday school teachers are prone to self-salvation. 
Look at all I've done. Look how good I'm doing. Very dangerous. The right religion, I'm a Pharisee. Look at the right reputation as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, the first time you meet the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul, is in Acts chapter 8. He's persecuting the church. And there was no one on the planet that did not believe that Paul was passionate for the things he thought God wanted him to do. He was so passionate, so sold out, that he persecuted the church. And you hear it today, you know what? I'm, it doesn't matter what you believe. It, it doesn't matter where you put your trust and your faith in it. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you are sincere, that you truly believe it. No one would fathom anyone more sincere than Saul of Tarsus. Regarding his life, he said this before he came to Christ. He said to the Galatian church, looking at his past and, and, and before he came to Jesus, he says, I was extremely jealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Listen to, I put together a little montage of, of, of Paul's own testimony in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 26. This comes from the lips of the Apostle Paul. Talk about his pre-conversion and his conversion. Listen to what he says. He's given testimony. Acts 22 and 26. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being jealous for God as all of you are this day. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. I'm a famous Jew. They have known for a long time. My reputation is out there. I persecuted this way of Christians. To the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. According to the strict party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them in the synagogue. I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I am zealous for God. Paul coordinated this, this terror campaign against the church and, and he achieved this growing infamy of Pharisaic terrorism. That's the apostle. And the point is this. Salvation does not come to us because we're passionate, fervent in our beliefs. People can be very sincere, very passionate, and very fervently wrong, as Paul was. He's pointing it out. Paul told the Romans in the Roman book, book of Romans about his Jewish brother that had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge or true knowledge. Salvation comes from the man Jesus Christ, not through a right reputation. So you have right religion, right reputation, finally, right righteousness. Look at Paul says. As to the law, as to righteousness under the law, excuse me, blameless. Paul, is, this is what he means by that. He means that everything on the outside, everything that man saw, not the inner work of the heart, everything that, was, uh, that man could judge by looking at Paul, he stands blameless. From the outward expression of his faith, his hard work and determination, outward expression, no one can find anything wrong with Paul. That's an unbelievable statement. Flawless, so strict, so strict. His outward observance to the law, interpreted by the religious leaders of his day, that in pursuit of legal uprightness, he was considered blameless, irreproachable, <laughs> beyond criticism. Dr. Bruce Barton, in his commentary, said this. I cracked up when I read it. When Paul did something, he did it with every fiber of his being. He took his position as a Pharisee seriously, whether it included detailed law-keeping or zealous persecution of heretics. Paul tried to appear perfect before people. You know people like that? 
Paul tried to appear perfect before people, and it seems as though he had accomplished that. If awards, awards, if awards were given for Pharisee of the month, Paul would have taken home more than his share of honors, end quote. Pharisee of the month. (laughs) After just evaluating his ancestry, rehearsing his ancestry, his achievements, evaluating his former life of what he thought was right and righteous and good, Paul now turns to his new life in Christ, the confidence in Christ, verse 7. Now, it's really important you see a couple of things that Paul does, and we're going to get into it a little bit here, and we're going to finish up next week. Paul makes a comparison. Paul, in verse 7, contrasts between confidence in his flesh, his ancestry, his achievements, and his confidence in Christ when he says, but, verse 7, but, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, if you write in your Bibles in between verse 6 and verse 7, write in there cross-reference Acts chapter 9. That's your cross-reference today. Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, what you find is the historical event of Paul's conversion. You find Paul on the road to Damascus, going to persecute and kill Christians, and Jesus shows up with a bright light and knocks him off his horse, and down he goes. Says, you've been persecuting me. If you read the book, you'll see his conversion. And what you read is that after Paul gets up from being knocked off his horse, I like to say face-to-face with Jesus, but face-to-fist with Jesus, right? He is told to go to a city, Damascus, and wait and for a man named Ananias. Meanwhile, God speaks to a man named Ananias and says, listen, go talk to Paul. He's like, really? That guy's killing people. God's like, I know what I'm doing. Just go do what I say. And what you find in Acts chapter 9 is after Paul gets busted upside the head, falls down, wakes up, gets off the horse, he's blind. He goes to Damascus, and he's there for three days. And in chapter 9, verse 17, Ananias shows up, just as God said, and he says this to Saul. Brother Saul, this is the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you three days ago on the road by which you came has sent me to you. He's going to lay hands on him to regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say that Paul arose, the scales fell off his eye, laid hands on him, Paul arose and was baptized. So not only did he get baptized, number one, after his conversion, not before. Believer's baptism, what we do here. The Apostle Paul, I'm just pointing that out. But it says in verse 20 of chapter 9, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God, and proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. That's the historical event. That's what took place. That's what Luke describes for us in Acts chapter 9. Here in Hebrew, excuse me, here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11 is what is seen, what, what Paul has gone through that we don't see. It's the heart's conversion. It is what, it's not the historical account outwardly, it's the historical account inward. That Paul finally came to realize when he came face to face with Jesus that his ancestry and his achievements And his moral success as a religious leader mean nothing when it comes to his salvation, justification, acceptance before God. And on that road to Damascus, everything changed. It wasn't about rules, it was about Jesus. It wasn't about rituals, it was about a relationship with the living God. And the way he came to that conclusion is astounding. He actually comes to that conclusion by using a accounting method. Accounting method. Notice with me in verse 7 and verse 8, Paul uses the words over and over again, the word gain, the word counted, and the word loss. He's using an accounting method by telling us what happened to his heart. Look with me in verse 7. The word gain is in the plural. He's evaluating the past, he's just the seven things we just talked about, and all the more, he says. He's evaluating the past, he's making a list of assets, counting them one by one, ancestry, human achievement, like a business transaction, all his asset, uh, excuse me, assets. 
And then he says, but whatever gain, as I think through all the assets I had, I counted lost. Now, the word counted is a mathematical term. Perfect tense. I, I'm evaluating to, to, to the, you know, a complete evaluation, adding all these things up. Paul says, I, I made a list. I added them all up. And when I added them all up, I found that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, in this asset column to find favor with God. I, I added it all up. Not only did it not commend them to God, Paul says it moved from those seven things that we talked about, moved to the liability column. It became a liability because the things that Paul is confident in when he's not confident in Christ and the things that he achieved actually becomes that, just that. His confidence now is in those things and he's missing out on the beauty and the glory of Christ. There's no value, no merit from his religious upbringing, from his ancestry, from his human, their human efforts, they become worthless. He recognized all those things were lost in comparing, compared to knowing Christ. And look what, and what's interesting about this verse. Whatever gain in the plural, I counted, I made a list, a mathematical term, my, my assets, he says I counted them as lost. The word loss is in the singular. Okay, it's in the singular. One by one, the Apostle Paul lists all these things, carefully added them up, all individually, and in one blink of an eye, everything that he added up in that column of assets become one big fat zero. Loss. All of it. Jesus Christ now became my one and only credit. The word loss can be found in two places in the Bible, that Greek word. Here in Philippians 3, and interestingly, in Acts chapter 27. You don't have to turn there. You can look at it later. Interesting, because in Acts 27, that word loss has to do with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is on a cargo ship. He's headed to Rome. Right? He got a ride. They were going to take him to Rome for his... For his um, uh, trial, and they put him on a cargo ship, a ship that is filled with goods, valuable goods, on its way to the motherland, to Rome. The treasure of what made that journey worthwhile was the cargo. But the sea began to really whip up. The storms began to blow, if you read the story. And the men on the ship said, listen, we have to throw this precious cargo over the side, we're all going to die. And the ship began to break up, and they kept throwing the valuable uh, things that they had in this cargo that all of a sudden were no longer valuable when their lives were at stake. It became worthless because we want to live. The cargo had to go if they wanted to live. And that, what was gained, became to them at that moment on that ship, in that storm, loss. For the Apostle Paul, all the cargo of his past life had to be thrown overboard so that he can gain his own spiritual life that's found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he saw and he was found and, he, and Christ embraced him, everything in life became of no value in comparison to the value and the joy he found in Jesus Christ, his Savior and law, law, Lord. Whatever gain I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's newfound joy, Paul's newfound value reminds me of this parable I put up on the screen. Matthew 13. Jesus teaching about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, salvation with the king of king, a relationship with Jesus the king. He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which, man, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field, a treasure, treasure that was hidden, now is his. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven, salvation with Jesus the king is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
That first parable stumbles along a, a hidden treasure. And the emphasis is on this joyful response of, of, of this great treasure, this great value with joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field where that hidden treasure. Joy overflows from his heart as he stumbles on this valuable hidden treasure. The second parable, he's searching for pearls. He knows what a, what a pearl, what a fine pearl and precious pearl looks like. He, he's searching to find that one. And when he comes across that very special single pearl of beauty, of value, of great treasure, he sells all that he has for that one precious pearl. Make no mistake about it. There was a great cost to obtaining that treasure. It cost them everything they owned, but like Paul with, a, with an analysis, it was worth it. And like Paul, both of those men, one standing in the field, remembering that hidden treasure, the other one looking at this precious pearl of great worth, both men did a cost-benefit analysis. And they, they realized that in order to give it all up for this one thing was of great value and worth. They'd be a fool not to do whatever was necessary to gain that treasure. Jesus turned to his disciples and said this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake and the gospel, Mark adds, will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? That's the great exchange. Your and mine human achievement for the achievement of Christ. Your efforts to save yourself in exchange for the effort of Christ to save you. Your life for his life for the greater and more valuable treasure. Now, let me just say this. I am going to say finally because we've got a little bit left, okay? Paul is not saying that these ancestries, these four things of his ancestry, these three things of achievements reveal that somehow being Jewish was wrong. I wish I were never there. That's not what he says. Or somehow being circumcised was evil or come from the Benjamin tribe is somehow detrimental to his salvation or being first in his class as a Pharisee is somehow, uh, 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 he failed his own religion. That's not what he's saying. His pedigree, his Jewish credentials had lots of value, educationally, socially. But for his salvation, there was no value at all. There are no merits, either by keeping the law, by keeping some sacraments that can make you right with God. If that were the case, Paul is a shoo-in. But when Paul came face to face to the beauty and glory of Christ and the gospel, he realized that when it came to being accepted before God, reconciled to a holy God, intimately known by God, what he achieved and his religious upbringing had no bearing at all. H.A. Ironside wrote this, talking about Paul. He was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrine, rules, and regulations making way for a better one. He had come in contact with the divine person the once crucified but now glorified Christ of God. He had been won by that person forever, and for his sake he counted all else but loss. Christ and Christ alone meets every need of the soul. His work was satisfied, his work has satisfied God, and it satisfies the one who trusts in him. End quote. The gospel is not about rules and regulations, about a relationship with Christ. It's not through religion. Again, we're, not, we're talking about religion, we're talking about human effort, standing before God. No, not for Paul. He said, but whatever gain I had, I made the list, I counted it, it was all for loss. That was his confidence, was in Christ. So let me ask you this morning, family. What are you counting on for your salvation? Where is your confidence this morning? Are you trusting in yourself? Or are you trusting in the achievements of Christ? And when you come to Christ, all the achievements become rubbish. We'll see that next week. We have to come, have a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, plus nothing. 
It's something we all have to realize. And maybe you're here today and you've trusted Christ alone, but maybe, maybe, the way you're, maybe, maybe the way you are acting, maybe the way you are judging others, you're hindering others to come because you, you're holding on to something, some sort of inherited right, rituals or rules rather than holding on crinks, uh, G- Jesus, the king, some self-righteous looking down on others. We need to repent of that. Becoming a Christ follower cannot be inherited. It can't be because you came in with someone or you know someone or, or your parents did something or your leaders that you know that you're hanging out with or living moral lives. All that must be renounced as a means of having Christ. But let, let me say this last thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you're trusting in something else. In anything or anyone other than Christ. And if you're trusting in, in someone else or something other than Christ or, or Christ plus something for your standing, for your acceptance with God, for your eternal life. What you're saying is Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not sufficient. If you're trusting in something, Jesus plus something, you are saying to the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufficiency and his work on the cross, that was very nice, but not enough. I hope you're here today. And really believe that nothing in your hand you bring, simply to the cross you cling, that Jesus is more than enough. He is sovereignly sufficient, and that is the foundation of gospel joy. Nobody could snatch that from us. As the band comes up, let me turn our attention to our response. Like Paul, our salvation, knowing Christ, listen, is when we count as lost all things we have formerly trusted in. All things we have formally trusted in and place our faith and trust in Christ alone, transferring your trust and faith from yourself for something else or from something else to Christ, believing that Jesus lived the perfect law-abiding life. He died as a substitutionary toning death on the cross. He rose from the dead and by faith in him alone, There is forgiveness, there is acceptability, there is access and entrance into the loving arms of God. Are you trusting in him today? I'm going to call your attention to the next song as we respond. It's not just words on a screen, as I say over and over. It is a response to him. So trust him today as we sing, God forbid that I should glory, save in the Redeemer's cross. Save means accept in the Redeemer's cross. As we sing this song, Let's just give it all over to him for his glory and our joy. Father, thank you for this time in your word. God, we just pray that as we respond in singing, Lord, that we would just count all our human achievements as loss. Anything that we bring to the table as loss is a way to achieve forgiveness, access, into your very presence, Lord. We come only by the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let him get all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name.